Let us bow our heads as we seek the Lord this morning. Father in heaven, just as I am, all to Jesus we surrender. All to him we freely give. Lord, we ask that as we pause for a few moments to reflect on the life of Daniel's three friends, that you would bless us, speak to us, we pray. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today we are continuing in our series of messages that we've entitled Lessons from the Life of Daniel, and I invite you to take out your study guide, which is in your bulletin. It's an outline of today's presentation, and so far in our lesson, or in our series, we've taken account of these two basic sections in the book of Daniel. You have them there in your study guide. The first section that we talked about is that the stories in Daniel are individuals as they came face to face with life and death decisions. These stories give us examples for living at the end of time. Daniel and his three friends are types of the last generation living right before the second coming of Jesus. They are a type of God's people and the characteristics that Daniel had we can possess by the grace of God. Daniel's three friends in today's stories story is not an anomaly. They are a type of what God will do for anyone who stands for him. And the second section in the book of Daniel are the prophecies, the prophecies accurately predicting the rise and fall of empires from Daniel's time to the end of time. And we talked briefly last Sabbath about one of those prophecies in Daniel chapter 2, the image of gold, silver, bronze, iron, feet partly of iron, partly of clay, representing the different kingdoms, and then the second coming of Jesus who will be the culmination that is a kingdom that will never be replaced and will last forever and ever. Now, this is an important image to take into consideration, especially in today's story. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll pick up in our scripture reading for today that Tamara read. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1. Remember in Daniel chapter 2, there was an image, a multi-type uh, of image of different types of metals. But in Daniel chapter 3, we see that Nebuchadnezzar goes out of his way to make a statement. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar wants to indicate that this head of gold is not just a head of gold, it is a statue of gold. So this image that we've just seen uh, prior here of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, Nebuchadnezzar gets a bright idea and says, I'm going to make a statue entirely of gold, indicating that his kingdom would last forever. It would never have an end. What Nebuchadnezzar did was he took a very plain teaching of Scripture, a very plain prophecy, and he reinterpreted the prophecy. 
There are Christians today that are taking prophecy and reinterpreting it as well, and you can see them in your study guide. There are three views of prophecy held by Christians today, and just like Nebuchadnezzar, they are taking the plainest prophecies of Scripture and using a different lens to interpret them. And the first one, you'll see there, that in your study guide, is preterism. Preterism. Preterism is that prophecy is for the what? Is for the past. This false view denies the supernatural nature of prophecy to predict the future. It is presented mostly by agnostics and atheists. Skeptics believe that the book of Daniel was written hundreds of years later, during the time of the divided kingdom. They say that there's no way that Daniel 2 was written beforehand, so the skeptics come up with a way of saying that Daniel is not really an inspired book, it's not prophecy, it's actually just history. But remember in our earlier presentations, we said that Jesus said that Daniel was a prophet. He is reliable. The preterist view says that prophecy is not predictive, prophecy is just in the past. The other view, is futurism, and this is held by many of our evangelical friends today, and futurism says that prophecy is only for the distant future. This is a false view of prophecy as well. It portrays a God who is disinterested with the pain and suffering of his people in history. One example of this is the Antichrist. Uh, many Protestants believe that the Antichrist is not living right now, the Antichrist is sometime in the future. This is known as futurism. So prophecy doesn't have a practical relevance to day-to-day -day living because it's just sometime in the nebulous future after the secret rapture, during the time of tribulation, and many Christians are saying, look, we don't have a, to worry about prophecy because as soon as the secret rapture happens, I'll be gone, or if I don't make it in the secret rapture, I'll get a second chance. Now, what is the right way of interpreting prophecy? And this is what we call historicism. And historicism is that prophecy outlines the span of world history as the history relates to God's people. All the way down to the end of time, this view is both moral and true. God is portrayed as, as a being who is interested in and who comforts and protects his people at all times. What do we mean by historicism? This is best illustrated by Daniel 2, because it goes from Babylon all the way to the second coming. It goes from the past to the present and extends on down to the future, which means that the prophecy of the past gives us faith that the prophecies of the future will be fulfilled, and because right now we're living during the time of the divided kingdom, in the toenails, I believe, of this image, it has relevance for us in our day-to-day -day living. This is the historical view, or historicism, as we have seen. Now, you'll notice from our scripture reading today that the image had a particular number that was used in its dimensions, the dimensions of the image according to Daniel chapter three, the gold statue is 60 cubits by six cubits. 
Six is the base number, and six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. Seven is known as the number of perfection or completeness, the seventh day Sabbath. But we have the number six, and it's interesting because the number six is the base number of the Babylonian number system. You find it in pagan religions all over the world. Now, we'll be coming back to this number as we compare Daniel chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 13. And just keep that in mind as we go through this story. So let's open our Bibles again to Daniel chapter 3 and pick up in our story. Now, you'll notice that this has a fascinating cadence, and Dr. Jacques Ducan, who's Old Testament professor at Andrews Theological Seminary, he says the way that Daniel 3 is structured, he says it's almost in a humorous way. Because you'll see, as we read it, it has this certain cadence to it. And I'll just read through a few verses here, read through our scripture reading once again, just so you can hear the particular way that this is phrased. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and it's with six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication which the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So it has a repetition here. This is where the humor comes in. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4, the herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that at the time you hear the horn, the flute, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whosoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. This is typically a bedtime story. If you imagine this scene, I don't know how many people were there. Um, Some scholars believe that the furnace was located right underneath the statue, and this was not uncommon in those days, especially in regards to children being sacrificed in these pagan religions. They would have a furnace or an inferno at the base of the statue. And there were likely hundreds, if not thousands, of people there on the plain of Dura that day. And they are standing before the statue. And by implication, when they worshiped the statue, they were worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. There was an association there. And this was a high day, a pinnacle moment in Nebuchadnezzar's experience. And there are thousands of people before this statue And when the band plays, right, the music, I don't know what type of music it was, but evidently it was emotional, got the emotions going, and then there's an edge to it because you know if you don't bow, there's an inferno that is waiting for you. So the music plays, the band goes, and then like dominoes, you can just imagine it, right? You know, people are just falling down, and Nebuchadnezzar, The egotistical, proud man is just looking. Ah, yes. 
going down. People are just bowing before this image. And he's basking in that afterglow moment. And a messenger comes in and says, King, got good news and bad news. Good news, 99% bowed the knee. But we got this problem. Three individuals will not bow. You can read the story. So they get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in and come before the king. And you can read about it because the king says, uh, I know uh, this has to be some sort of a misunderstanding. Let's do a redo, right? Let's do a do-over. Uh, I don't mind them bowing a second time. We'll, we'll crank up the band again. I'll tell you what. And we'll do this all over again, and we'll act like it didn't happen. So let's do it. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are before the king, and they tell him, look, you can have as many do-overs as you want. We ain't bowing. <laughs> and the Bible says that his countenance was enraged. I, I like one translation. It says that his face became distorted. He got mad, hopping mad in a rage and fury and says, look guys, crank up the heat on that furnace. And the Bible says that he got his special forces guards, guys that had been lifting weights in the gym, big, burly, muscular men, and they took these guys, bound them in their clothes, threw them into the fiery furnace, Thousands are watching. Nebuchadnezzar is probably like, look, this will teach everyone a lesson to ever disobey me. And they're watching, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are walking around in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, one, two, three, four. Four. And the Bible says that he... Nebuchadnezzar said, he looks like the Son of God. One theologian reflecting on this said, how did he know it looked like the Son of God? Well, they had seen the character of God in the life of Daniel and his three friends. So he's like, it looks like the Son of God. Now, can you imagine being the, the three friends of Daniel walking around in the furnace? You know, first of all, they're like, hey, we're not being burned. Something's unusual. It's not hot in here. And so they're, they're walking around. And then suddenly, Jesus is there. And he's like, hey, guys, I thought I'd join you in here. <laughs> I, uh, what, what, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say what they talked about. But, but they were in there for I don't know how long, but they're, they're walking around. I, what the conversation must have been. There's so many lessons in this. God doesn't save us from the fire. He is with us through the fire. Amen? Amen. And when we stand for God and we go through trial, God is right there with us. They would have missed an, an experience with God if they had compromised and bowed on the plain of Dura. But there they were in the fire, and they are with Jesus in the flesh, having a conversation. And then Nebuchadnezzar's like, um, you can come out now. <laughs> so they come out, and the Bible says that they do an examination. They go up to them and smell their clothes. They say, you don't even smell like fire. They look at their hair. Your hair's not even singed. You're, you're not even hot. 
And Nebuchadnezzar is amazed. Talk about a damper to a party. It went from it's all about Nebuchadnezzar to, to all about God. And there's so many lessons that we can draw from this. And if you look in your study guide, here are the lessons that we want to look at. Nebuchadnezzar sets up forced worship. Death by fire is promised for those who will not comply. And force is the last resort of all false religion. Anytime a religious community seeks to coerce individuals to come into agreement, you know that they are operating from false principles because God does not force anyone. Love is the foundation of the way that God governs. Force is the last resort of all false religion. It's interesting because you see in this story, the music is mentioned multiple times. Uh, I believe there's four repetitions in which they go through the type of music that is played. And there's one quote that says, you write the laws and let me write the music and I will rule your country. Music, powerful thing. And in this moment, it was an emotional experience that drove them to action. Do you think music's gonna play a role in the end of time? You better believe it. Music is a powerful force and it could be used for good or for evil. And this is from Dr. Dukan. He makes this reflection. The ancients knew how to use music to elicit a mystical experience. Everything remains on the level of emotions and the nervous system. This episode in the book of Daniel warns us against a strictly emotional religion. Emotion can be a part of the religious experience only when united with reflection and thought. God doesn't expect us to get a lobotomy and follow him. Remove your brain and just follow. God expects us to use our brains. There's emotions in the Christian experience, but never are to those emotions to hijack reason and conscience. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want those people to think first and act second. He wanted them to feel the music and then act. And there are certain types of music that hijack reason and conscience. And music's going to play a pivotal role in the end of time. Moving quickly in your study guide, Daniel 3 pictures a mixture of false religion and the state. Nebuchadnezzar made a decree. He used his power of state to enforce false worship. You see, Nebuchadnezzar the state enforcing false religion and false worship. And this will happen again in the end of time. In the Old Testament, we have an allusion to this. Remember the story of Ahab and Jezebel? Ahab... The state marries Jezebel, the head of Baal worship, and for three and a half years, there is no rain in Israel. Fascinating, because in the book of Daniel Revelation, you have three and a half years as well, 42 months, 1260, time, time, and half a time, and the, you have Elijah, who comes on the scene and brings Israel back to God, and we're told in the end of time that the Elijah message will come again. Church and state, uniting. Few points underneath that. 
powerful world leader forces false worship, the test is global. The forced worship involves breaking one of the Ten Commandments. In other words, this is not just a bedtime story. This is a type of what is going to take place in the very final moments of Earth's history. Again, worship is going to be a central issue. Against, again, again, force is going to be something that is going to be used to coerce people to come into line. And again, the Ten Commandments are going to be involved as well. What took place in the book of Daniel will take place again. Another lesson that we can draw from this is that Jesus didn't keep them from the fire. He is with them through the fire. God doesn't keep us from tribulation. He is with us through tribulation. God doesn't protect us from going into trial. He protects us within the trial fundamental difference. There's a theory out there that says, look, God's people are totally going to avoid tribulation because they're going to be raptured. Well, the Bible says that God's people are going to go through tribulation. And just like Jesus was with the three friends, he will be with us when we're faithful to him. Practical lessons that we can learn from this uh, especially in regards to living in the very final moments of verse history. Daniel 3 is a foretaste of what we call the mark of the beast. And so let's read about that. Uh, let's go to Revelation chapter 13, and you'll see the startling parallels between what we just read in Daniel chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, we see that another image is going to be set up, and there's going to be first forced worship that is going to take place as well. Revelation chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Let's actually go to verse 15 here. Revelation chapter 13, verse 15. He was, grant, he was granted power to give breath to the, what does the Bible say in verse 15? Image. To the image. You see that right there. The Bible says that there's going to be an image set up in the end of time similar to the type of image that was set up in Daniel chapter 3, there's going to be an image that is set up. He is granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not, what is the next word there? Worship the image of the beast to be what? To be killed. Fascinating. Same type of language used in Revelation chapter 7. You have an image, you have worship, you have force. And the penalty for not worshiping is death. What happened in Daniel will happen again. Revelation chapter 13, verse 16, he causes, which means he forces. He forces all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is what? 666. Now, have you seen an image that is based on the number 6 before? Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is a type, an illustration of what God's people will go through in the very end. 
Worship is going to be a central issue. Do you know everyone is going to be worshiping someone? You're either going to worship Jesus Christ or Antichrist. You're either going to worship the Lamb or you're going to worship the beast. And there's going to be some teeth put into this. You either worship the beast or else you're going to lose privileges and you're going to be killed. That is the penalty in Daniel chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 13. Very quickly in your study guide, points of similarity between Daniel chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 13. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar at the end of time, like Nebuchadnezzar at the end of time, there will be an image of swords created by a beast. Just like Nebuchadnezzar set up a beast, in the end of time there will be an image set up. Just like Nebuchadnezzar set up an image, in the end of time there will be an image set up. In both stories, people are forced to worship the image or be killed. Coercion is a tactic both by Nebuchadnezzar and by this beast power. And number three, like Nebuchadnezzar, a powerful world leader will try to enforce false worship in the mark of the beast issue. Worship will be a central issue in the end of time. Number four, in Daniel chapter three, there is a fiery furnace. In Revelation chapter 13, the fire comes down from heaven. So you have fire and you have fire in Revelation chapter 13. And number five, the number of... The image in Daniel chapter 3 is 60 cubits by 6 cubits, and the number of the beast in Revelation 13 is 666. I believe that we are very close to the fulfillment of this prophecy. I don't know how. I don't have a timetable. But in my own personal reflections, I believe that September 11 will go down in American history as a watershed, watershed moment in how Americans view the Constitution. Do you know that in the name of national security, all of your constitutional rights right now can be suspended? Habeas corpus, right to a trial, right to a lawyer, you can be held indefinitely, not even knowing the cause of what you're being held for. I believe that we're living in a time of what we call turnkey tyranny, where all of your cell phone records, all of the data, all of us are under surveillance. And most Americans don't care because we say, hey, we have nothing to hide. But re in reality, if we don't have the freedom to talk openly about our beliefs and our ideas, even if it's against those in power, what freedom do we really have? These are some things for us to really process in terms of where we are living in history, and I have news for us, doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican or Independent, in the end, everybody's gonna get in line. That's what the Bible predicts. These things will come true, and Jesus says, just like Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome fell in successive order into divided Europe, Revelation chapter 13, if I were a betting, a man, if I were a betting man, and I'm not, I'll put my money on this prophecy being fulfilled as well. 
Some practical lessons that we can learn from Daniel chapter 3 is beware of rationalization. What do we mean by that? It would have been very easy on the plain of Dura as the music is playing and as those people are going down like dominoes and bowing the knee, you know, just going down, as those three Hebrews are standing there, it would have been very easy for them to say, oh, uh, I have a toe cramp. I tripped, right? I have to tie my shoelace. A thousand excuses, and it probably could be a lot more sophisticated than that. They could have thought, hey, I'm going to bow, but in reality, I'm going to be worshiping God, not the image. Or, I can serve God a lot better alive than dead. What's the big deal? Just one bow. Go with the flow. When in Babylon, do what the Babylonians do. There would have been so many reasons and ways of rationalizing why they could have knelt on the plain of Dura. And they said, look, this is not a hill to die on. Well, when it deals with God's commandments, according to Daniel chapter 3, it is a hill to die on. That's the illustration that we have. This is radical faithfulness. Faithfulness unto death. An issue worth dying for. And I can't help but think in my own life, when it comes to not even anything in the same level of the fiery furnace, how the temptation to rationalize comes into our frame. Whether it be Sabbath-keeping or stewardship or any practical application of Scripture, it's like we have a thousand reasons why. I talked about this book or the person from this book Pavel Goya, One Miracle After Another. And if you want an inspirational read of radical faithfulness, this is one. I was reading this before I went to bed. I said, oh my, what a life. Pavel Goya. Pavel Goya was growing up in communist Romania. It was a country that was not favorable in the very least to Christianity. And Pavel tells the story. There's, there's one miracle literally after another, remarkable story. And so he's enlisted to serve for a period of time in the military. It's mandatory service in the communist army. So he's there, and he's a Sabbath keeper. So every Sabbath, he just disappeared and went off to this little storage room and kept the Sabbath and then would just reappear. And he was such a good worker that the lieutenant would kind of wink and let it go. Well, there was another lieutenant that came into the, uh, the rank over, over Pavel Goya, and he called Pavel Goya in and said, look, I, it's my understanding that you have not worked a single Sabbath since you've been in the military. Pavel Goya said, yes, that is true. It's the seventh-day Sabbath. I need to keep it holy. And the commander said, I command you right now, because it was Saturday, he said, I command you right now to go and dig a foxhole. And Pavel said, I will not dig a foxhole on the Sabbath. And this lieutenant, when you read the account, it says that he began to foam at the mouth. That's the exact words of Pavel Goya's 
account. He began to foam at the mouth and began to jump around like, like an insane man. He was so mad. And this was in front of all the other soldiers. He said, how dare you have the audacity to disobey my orders? You're going to pay for this, Pavel. So he called a trial. And the person that was presiding over the hearings was the general and the lieutenant went first and went through how Pavel had not kept a single Sabbath, single seventh day uh, in terms of working in the army. And he went on and on and on. And the general sat back, sat back and he said, well, um, has he done anything else? Uh, what is his work ethic? And uh, they all said, Pavel's one of our best soldiers. He's one of our best workers. Has he caused any other problems? Uh, they said, No. And the general said, and you want to ruin this man's life because he wants to keep Saturday? And he turned to the lieutenant. He says, I order you to leave this man alone. And if you disobey me, you are disobeying my orders. Later on, one of the fellow soldiers went to Pavel and said, do you know the general? (laughs) Pavel said, I never met him before in my life. And you know what the fellow soldier said? He said, there must be a God. He said, there must be a God because this is atheist, communist Romania and this kind of thing just does not happen. We need to do right because it is right and leave the consequences with God. Let him deal with the consequences. I think of this, uh, this quote here. It says, well, then, there is a God. This is a quote from the book. After all, this is unheard of in a communist country. And in your study guide, you have a few quotes there. We should choose the right because it is right and leave the consequences with God. Great Controversy, page 460. It is better to die than to sin, better to want than to defraud, Better to hunger than to lie. One of my favorite quotes, Education, page 57, the greatest want of the world is the want of men. Men who will not be bought or sold. Men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole men who will stand for the right, though the heavens fall. The same God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the same God of today. And when we stand for him, God will honor us. Amen? And notice the the nature of what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. They, They told Nebuchadnezzar, God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we won't worship your image. And by the grace of God, we can be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Amen? Amen. We can say, Lord, I want to make your approval and pleasing you my highest priority. Amen? Amen? Not the fear of man, but the fear of God. To be in the audience of one. 
How many of you want to say, Lord, help me to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Amen. Father in heaven, Lord, what a story. Some of us have heard this a thousand times. But every time I go through this story, I am just amazed at your faithfulness. Lord, we want to walk with you in the fire. We want to have an experience with you, an experience with God. Help us, Lord. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Help us to do right because it is right and leave the consequences with God. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.